Hi, I'm Alan Stein, Jr., author, speaker, and a high-impact coach. For today's episode, I am extremely excited for today's guest. We have on with us Alan Stein, Jr. He is one of the world's top motivational speakers. He's a performance coach, has worked with some of the top NBA players, and the author of Raise Your Game. Uh, and so, Alan, I'm extremely excited to have you on. I'm equally excited. been looking forward to this. Talk to us a little bit about what your upbringing was like, what it was like growing up, and what your early passions were as a child. Sure. I, I had a wonderful childhood. Um, you know, I, I, at a very early age, I was exposed to a lot of different activities, uh, most of which fell under the umbrella of sport. Uh, I've always mm -hmm. been very high energy and, and very into just the physical movement and expression of energy. So uh, as a youngster, I did just about every sport under the sun, um, from conventional sports, baseball, basketball, football, uh, soccer, uh, to some more unconventional activities like skateboarding and BMX biking and martial arts. Uh, and, and I enjoyed all of them, but I always gravitated back towards basketball. Uh, I believe basketball was my first identifiable passion, and I fell in love with the game at probably four or five years old. Uh, and even now at 43, uh, the game uh, still is a major pillar in my life. So I've been very thankful uh, to have been able to in some way, shape, or form to kind of live out my passion and live out my dream ever since I was a kid. Mm, wow. That's amazing, Alan. And what was it that got you into basketball originally? Was it introduced to you formally as a child or did you get into it the people you're around or did you always kind of have a knack for it? What was the, the backstory behind that? You know, I, I believe my parents just signed me up to play recreation basketball at, as a kindergartner, and, and I enjoyed the game, and it was fun. Um, but then if, if you look at my age, so I'm 43, so that means uh, when I'm four or five years old, this is kind of the, the beginning of the NBA becoming such a big deal on a global level. I mean, you've got Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and the Showtime Lakers. Uh, but then this is also right around the start, you know, as I'm in first, second, third, fourth grade uh, of when Michael Jordan came on the scene and, and certainly not only changed basketball, but changed pop culture as we knew it. Um, so in my formative years of being in elementary and middle school, that was kind of when Jordan took the baton from those guys and became the face of the NBA. And, you know, I, I don't know too many people that are in my age demographic that played basketball that 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 didn't also heighten their experience, you know, having somebody as iconic as Jordan, you know, and of course my room was plastered with posters of Michael Jordan, and unopened <laughs> Wheaties boxes I had on the shelves and so forth. So I think that was part of it. And then as I got older, you know, in, in middle school and even high school, I think one of the things that I really loved about the game of basketball was it had both an individual and a team component. You know, individually, I could go out and work on the primary skills of the game uh, by myself. You know, I didn't need anybody else. I could go out to the park uh, as long as there was a hoop and a ball, and I could work on my ball handling and my shooting. And that's not true for other conventional team sports. Uh, it's mm. very difficult to practice baseball or soccer or football if you don't have someone else to kick with throw with, tackle, you know, and so forth. So the, the fact that I could, you know, kind of go out on my own, uh, and I'm somewhat introverted in many ways, uh, so having some solitude out on the basketball court for hours a day uh, was something that I loved. But then I loved that I could take everything that I worked on individually 
and, and use that to try to help my team win or to make my teammates better or to be a part of something bigger than myself. So I think those two aspects uh, was something uh, in addition to what I already mentioned that really kept me hooked on the game. Mm, wow. Wow. And, and, and what was it, Alan, that kept you passionate about basketball at such a young age? Uh, where did that fire come from? Did you know early on to start demanding high levels of excellence for yourself? Or was it just a passion that was uh, just kind of rooted inside? What, what would you say that that passion came from? It was just fun. I, I don't know any other way to describe it. I just enjoyed playing the game. And, and of course, again, as a youngster, and then, you know, watching Michael Jordan on TV, um, and then, you know, that, that will spark your own imagination and your own creativity. So, you know, going out in my driveway and trying to mimic him doing certain moves, you know, uh, or, or even wearing a Michael Jordan jersey while I'm outside playing, you know, I just think that, the, the imagination that we have as kids and unfortunately usually start to lose as we grow older uh, mm. just made the whole thing fun. I mean, you know, basketball was, was just pure bliss for me all the way up through high school. And then I was able to play in college, but, but really started to experience some burnout in college. And the, the game felt more like a job and felt more like a chore than it did for love. And, and that was, you know, a hurdle that I had to pass, but uh, yeah, as a kid, I think the passion just came from pure enjoyment. Mm. I see. Amazing. And so, so you're young, you're playing basketball, you're growing up, you're going through college. What, what were your ambitions at this time? Did you, uh, did you always love boosting others and coaching others? Or were you planning on going to the NBA? Where was young Alan heading at this time? Well, you know, it's so funny when, when you're young, and I have three young children now, so I, I certainly uh, can, can look back on my own childhood now that I can see things with great clarity with my own kids. You know, when you're really young, you know, the world's not much bigger than what you can see right in front of you. So, of course, you know, in elementary school, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm one of the best kids at my elementary school. I'm sure I'm going to play in the NBA one day. And, and it's not until I got to middle school and high school that I realized that was more than likely not going to happen. And, and I was okay with that. You know, I, I still felt I had what it took uh, to, to play college basketball and to get someone to pay for my education to do something that I loved. So that became a goal. Uh, but, you know, when I was graduating college, I just knew that I wanted to be involved in the game. And, you know, I was taught at a very early age that you, you should find what you love and you should find what you're good at. And then you should find where those two things intersect. And that point of intersection is, is kind of your strength zone. That, that's where you'll be most successful. And I, I just couldn't envision my strength zone not including the game of basketball. So um, mm. coming out of college in the late 90s, though, you know, there, there weren't that many opportunities. You know, if, if you couldn't play the game, you know, coaching was really the only other option that you had. And, uh, you know, mm. so I initially thought that I would be you know, a high school coach and a high school teacher, but found out very quickly, I just wasn't very passionate about the teaching portion of that. All I wanted to do was basketball. So uh, both of my parents were elementary educators. And, and I learned from them that, you know, teaching uh, is a vocation that, that you have to be 100% in, you know, you have to be all in it with heart, soul and mind to, to serve your students. And that's not something that you can just go through the motions and something that you just you know, just kind of mail in. So when I realized that I wasn't very passionate about the teaching out of respect for that profession, uh, I quickly pivoted to something else. And around this time was when I started to develop an equal affinity for strength and conditioning, uh, for running sprints and lifting weights and trying to improve vertical jump and 
all of that stuff. So uh, it just made the most sense that when I graduated, that, that becoming a basketball performance coach and helping players in the game that I love improve their athleticism and bulletproof their bodies against injury uh, was probably the best path for me. And it most certainly was. And, and I did that for almost 20 years uh, until a couple of years ago, uh, I decided to, to transfer over to the corporate world and become a professional speaker and author and share all of the lessons and principles and strategies that I had learned through the game. Mm, amazing. And that's once you found your, your point of intersection, that was the, the route that you had. Uh, that, that's the route that you had chosen at that point to be to be working with high performance uh, coaching NBA players. Yeah, and and funny enough, I mean, I'm still in my strength zone, but now that I'm older and my passions have changed and mm. and I've been able to develop other skill sets, I'm still right now as a professional speaker, I'm still at the intersection of what I love and what I'm good at. But now that I'm older, that intersection has changed. And, and that's one thing I, I'd certainly advise. I advise all youngsters that I speak to, uh, but I also advise, you know, peers and, and so forth that your, your strength zone will change, that you're going you're gonna to find new passions in life. Uh, some older passions may die out and you're going to develop new skills and, and develop uh, and discover new things that you're good at. So uh, the key is, is always being reflexive and, and being able to adapt. Um, and once I realized that, you know, my passion for helping players get bigger, faster, and stronger uh, was not as, as bright as it was before. That's when I knew I had to move. I mean, I, I was still good at what I was doing, but I just wasn't as passionate about it as I had been years prior. So that was the reason for me making the, the transition, you know, two years ago over into the corporate mm. speaking world. Mm. I see. I see. And, and, and so talk to us about that a little bit, the, the, the point of intersection and how can how a lot of the people that listen to this show um, may be at a point where they're starting out as a coach or they may have some success as a coach. Um, and, and one of the things that I hear a lot of people struggle with a lot is knowing exactly what niche to get into and, and what uh, and how to really leverage their strengths and their passions to become a successful coach and coach others. And uh, so what's, what has been the process for you for, for finding your, your point of intersection at different stages of your life? The key is going to be self-awareness and, and being able to do some introspection and really look at yourself and, and figure out, you know, what type of coaching do you enjoy most? Uh, what type of coaching are you best at? And what type of coaching is there actually a demand for? You know, when I hear the word coach, that could range from someone that's coaching my own children in youth basketball, or that could be someone that's coaching high-powered executives one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, to, to become better in their, in their business. So, um, mm. you know, coaching, it, it can be, there's a variety of different audiences. Uh, coaching can be something that's very personal and one-on-one, -on -one, or it can be something that's done in large group format. It can be done in just about any genre. I mean, we, we usually, most people at least, relegate the word coach to the sporting world and, and because mm. athletes always have coaches, but you know, mm. as I'm learning on this side, I mean, I, I have a speaking coach, I have a writing coach, I work mm. with people that are business coaches. So everyone in the world needs a coach because everyone in the world needs to try to improve their performance in some area. So if, if you feel like the, the servanthood of coaching and pouring into others and filling their buckets is something that you're passionate about, then the next step is just figuring out 
which area you would be best served. And, you know, perfect example, you know, take somebody like Bill Belichick, the, the coach of the Patriots. I mean, I know plenty of people don't care for him and that's fine, but it's, it's kind of hard to argue the result that he's had. Well, I'm willing to bet that if Bill Belichick coached a group of eight-year-olds, probably wouldn't go near as well. Uh, he's not suited to coach eight-year-olds. And I'm just saying that I don't know the man, but I'm guessing based on what I've seen and read about him that he's more geared towards elite professionals. And when he's in that domain, he's as good as anyone that's ever done it. Well, maybe not if he's coaching eight-year-olds. So uh, it's just important to figure out where your strengths lie. And then also what what you enjoy you know with with his standard of excellence and and the way that he runs his program I imagine he'd get really frustrated working with eight-year-olds because they're not able to do the things that Tom Brady can do so not only would he probably not enjoy it as much he wouldn't even be as good at it so uh, it's important to really find uh, where your strengths lie and what you really enjoy because it'll be almost impossible to put in the work required to be successful if you're doing something that you don't thoroughly enjoy. Hmm. Yeah, I agree so much. Um, yeah. And so, so Alan, you've coached some of the top players in the NBA. Uh, one of them being Kevin Durant, and you've also coached middle schoolers as well. And when you first began to start coaching the highest levels of players in all of basketball, uh, the people that are looked up to most, what was it that, stuck out to you most when you started to to coach them what, what are the things that you notice that are different about them and uh, a quote-unquote average basketball player and what is it that I think what everyone wants to know is what is it that makes somebody an NBA player well prior to answering that let me just say that one of the things that I'm, I'm so thankful for is that I have a very unique perspective on performers, especially in the game of basketball, because I've had an opportunity to work with a bunch of them when they were 14, 15, 16 years old before they made it big. So I got to see the proverbial before picture, uh, a player like Kevin Durant or Victor Oladipo. You know, I got to see them before they became stars and, and to see what it took for them to climb that ladder and become the stars they are today. Uh, and then that work led to some gigs where I was able to observe and watch firsthand the best players in the world. So I got to see that proverbial after picture and I got to see what it takes to be an elite performer. So having been able to see the before and the after uh, has been incredibly helpful and, and really opened up my perspective to what it takes to perform at a high level. And since most of those folks were in the game of basketball, it's been my mission now to translate everything that they do, their mindsets, their rituals, their disciplines, routines and translate that so that the rest of us who are not high performers in basketball can use those strategies and principles to be high performers in whatever it is that we're trying to do. And, and that's, you know, for being able to see the before and the after has been incredibly important. And, you know, from a coach, I also, because this, this podcast is so focused on coaches that how good you are as a coach, how effective you are of a coach has nothing to do with the level that you coach. You know, you know, I, most of the players that I've worked with have been very average teenage basketball players. You know, they're not mm. names that anyone would recognize. And, and the number of those kids is in the thousands. Uh, clearly, people tend to gravitate towards the dozen or so I've had a chance to work with that ended up becoming, you know, really, really accomplished players. Um, but, you know, I've come across coaches that coach at the middle school level, and they are as good of a coach as I've ever met 
in any walk of life. You know, I say all the time that Mike Jones, the head high school basketball coach at DeMatha Catholic High School, is as good as any coach and any leader I've met in any profession, in any sport, at any level. Uh, he just chooses to coach at the high school level because he's found what he's good at and what he loves. So it's important to know that while certainly – you know, head coaches in the NBA are brilliant at what they do. It doesn't automatically mean they are better than a college coach or a high school mm -hmm. coach or a middle school coach or an AAU coach. Uh, and same thing when it comes to business coaching, you know, whether you coach singers or actors or musicians or executives, you know, it, just because your roster is full of people that, that are famous doesn't automatically mean that you are better at your craft. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there because it's, it's so important. And while I do, you know, people love the, the star factor and the credibility of, of some of the bigger names I've worked with, uh, you know, working on my, my craft and, and sharpening my saw happened more often with just regular kids. Mm, interesting. To answer your original question about what, what makes someone elite, well, in the game of basketball, it, it would be irresponsible to ignore the physical talent part. And, and mm. that's just, the, that's reality. To be able to play a professional sport there's a certain level of physicality and athleticism that's required. Uh, and this is just generally speaking. Yes, there will always be exceptions to the rule. You know, but I, if you look in the, you know, in the last 30 years in the NBA, and, and I don't know what the answer to this is. I'm going to completely speculate. But in the last 30 years of the NBA, the percentage of players that have been shorter than six feet tall, I'm guessing is very, very small, like one or two percent small. So not only are NBA players in the top 1% of everyone that plays the game, well, to be less than six foot and be in the upper 1%, now you do the math. I mean, you are, you are a diamond in the rough. So to play a game like basketball, you know, it helps to have a certain amount of height. It helps to have a certain amount of coordination and, and uh, athleticism and physical prowess. Um, whereas in the non-athletic world, those things aren't near as important. You know, obviously, uh, to, to be an entrepreneur, to have a startup, uh, it doesn't matter how tall you are, or how fast you can run, those things are negated. But to play wow. professional basketball, you do have to have some physical talent. And uh, it's kind of a, a spectrum, though, because the less physical talent you have, then the higher you have to score on all of the other things, like work yeah. ethic and attitude and mental toughness and grit and your heart and your motor and your IQ for the game. So it's, it's definitely a balance. And then when you get to the, the Tom Brady's and the LeBron James of the world, they just tend to have most of what's required. I mean, they've got, you know, good athleticism. They've got a good IQ. They've got good heart. They've got, you know, the commitment to getting better at their craft. You know, they're the perfect storm of all of that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and when we look at, at the business world, since we don't need the physicality part, then we've got to look at other measures. And what I'm finding is that when it comes to, to business, that IQ is a lot less important than EQ. Uh, one's intellectual and academic intelligence uh, does not dictate their, their success near as much as their emotional fitness and their emotional intelligence and their mm -hmm. ability to manage feelings, their ability to relate to others, their ability to communicate. So those are skill sets that, that folks need. And that's not to diminish IQ and that's not to diminish the technical side. Uh, those things are important, but I'm finding not near as important as some of these other traits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. 
And, uh, and so, Alan, you've worked with many companies uh, and you've spoken for many companies, some of them including Crunch Fitness, Pepsi, Equinox, and uh, many others. And what things about basketball could leaders in business learn from to become the top players in their industries? It's funny, you know, only a portion of the audiences I speak to, you know, have an equal affinity for basketball that I do. So uh, it's so important for folks to know that when I come in and talk to a company, whether it's a keynote or a workshop, that I, I do share a lot of stories from my basketball path past because that's the path I've been down, but they're not basketball talks and that folks that don't like basketball, don't watch basketball and don't care about basketball. Uh, I work really hard to make sure they get just as much out of it uh, as anyone else. And, you know, when I, I look at the high performers, I've had a chance to be around uh, the one that always immediately jumps out is that they never get bored with the basics that, that they've, they've learned to really respect the process and trust the fundamentals of what it takes to get good. And, you know, in a sport like basketball, you know, you've got the basic skills of shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, and handling the ball. Uh, but at the most basic component is a player's footwork because everything a player does on the court it starts at their feet. So players that spend a lot of time mastering their footwork usually perform their skills at a higher level. And when players perform their skills at a higher level, they're better than other players. So I always ask leaders in business to identify what their basics are. What are their fundamentals? What are the things that they have to have mastered in order to be successful? And what are the things that, that make up the foundation to which the rest of the house is built? And more often than not, they can easily identify those things, but like many people do, uh, they tend to skip over them. And they, they tend to chase what's, what's hot and new and flashy and sexy and ignore what's basic. But time and time again, we see that the basics work. They always have and they always will. And, you know, encouraging folks to enjoy and embrace the basics are vital. And one that I use in as an example all the time, um, you know, and something you're doing an excellent job of right now, it's the skill of listening. I really believe that the skill of listening is one of the most important skills for leaders to develop so that they can really get a pulse uh, of their team and of their people and to be able to ask insightful questions and, and listening mm -hmm. is the way that you show someone that you care about them and that you're invested in them. So I look at listening as a very basic skill that all leaders should be practicing on a regular basis because mm -hmm. that's kind of the footwork of what they do. Mm. Yeah. So true. Um, so true. And, 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 and so Alan, a lot of the people that listen to this show are also parents and raising children. And you, Alan, are a father of three. And, and one of the things that I've heard about you is that a lot of people comment on your children being very well behaved. Um, what is it that are some of the basics and the fundamentals that you've, that you've learned as a father that, uh, that many can take away to raise uh, high-performing children and set them up for success early on? Well, I know as a father, you know, and, and any parent listening to this knows that none of us were issued a handbook when our children were, were born and that we're all learning as we're going. And it's funny, you know, I'm very amicably divorced, so I have my kids half the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, w when I have them and anytime I drop them back off at their moms, uh, I always kind of do a quick reflection of how I did. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I should be awarded father of the year and be on the front of People magazine. And then there's other times I just want to smack myself in the face because I didn't do as good of a job as I'm capable of. So I do believe that, that parenting 
uh, is an incredibly challenging but obviously fulfilling role to have. And, and some of my principles when it comes to parenting, one is I, I model the behavior that I want to see in my children. You know, mm. I don't need to give them a long lecture on how important it is to be respectful of others. They just see that I'm respectful to everyone that I deal with. You know, mm. if it's a waiter or a waitress, you know, I model for them the way that you should treat a fellow human being. So that's, that's one, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I do my best. And this is where it ebbs and flows because I have struggles just like everyone listening to this. I do my best to be fully present when I'm with my kids. And I, I try to detach from my phone and I try to give them my undivided attention. You know, I do my best to actively listen and ask them questions and show them that I care. Uh, and as I said, uh, there are days where I do that brilliantly. And then there's other days where, you know, I'm thankful child services doesn't come and take them away because I just Mm -hmm. didn't do a good job of paying attention to them. And, you know, but that's, that's something that I want them to know because, you know, the number one gift any of us have to give another human being is our attention in the present moment. You know, Mm -hmm. even the folks listening to this right now, uh, please don't think that I'm taking for granted the fact that you are, you are giving us your attention right now and that is your most valuable currency and I, I really and truly from the bottom of my heart appreciate that so I try to give that gift to my children uh, and then the other things you know I, I believe in autonomy you know I try to have my kids make as many of their own decisions as possible because I want them to learn the connection uh, between you know choices and consequences so mm. you know and I know a lot of people don't agree with this philosophy and to put it in context I have twin sons that will be nine next week and I have a daughter that will be seven uh, in June so a perfect example like I don't make my kids put on a winter coat when they go outside mm. like put it on or don't and if you mm. don't you're going to be cold and you're going to learn the you should have put a coat on you know mm. I don't make my kids finish every drop of food on their plate like if you like if you don't want to eat it, then don't eat it. But if you're hungry later, then you'll realize you probably should have eaten it. And, you know, mm-hmm. I let them choose what they wear. I let them choose what they order when we go to a restaurant. You know, I don't let them make catastrophic life decisions. I, I'm, not, I'm not insane. I'm not going to let my nine-year-olds get tattoos if they want. But when they're older, that will absolutely be a decision that they get to make. And mm-hmm. if they get something tattooed on their arm that three years later they wish they didn't get, that's how you learn. So I'm a big believer in autonomy. And as you can see, then I'm also a big believer in, in letting my kids fail and mess up and make mistakes. And I try to use everything as a learning experience. So, you know, I know that as nine-year-olds and a seven-year-old, my kids are going to say and do a lot of stupid things. I'm 43. I still say and do a lot of stupid things. Uh, the key is acknowledging them, is, is learning from it, and then just moving on and not repeating it, you know? So um, I don't make a big deal out of anything that my kids do. Uh, if it's something where I believe there's a life lesson, I do my best to connect the dots and then we move forward. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, then the last piece of my parenting uh, really piggybacks on how we started our conversation is I'm encouraging them to find the things that they love. Uh, I do my best and, and, and so does their mom um, to give them as many opportunities to experience things as possible. So try mm. as many different activities and sports as you can. You know, my mm. kids have done everything from boxing to gymnastics to basketball to chess to martial arts to t-ball. To, they've tried it all. And, and my only rule with them is, you know, that if you sign up for something, then you have to finish that season or you have to finish those number of classes. Uh, you can't quit. When it's over, if you choose never to do it again for the rest of your life, that is totally fine. Uh, but when you sign up to be a part of a team, 
other people are counting on you and you can't quit just because you don't feel like it. So you have to see it through to the end of the season. And then when the season's over, you're free to make any choice you want after that. And um, to piggyback on that is I only have four, four guidelines for my kids for all of their activities um, and all of the sports. Uh, number one is make sure you're coachable. So you need to listen to whoever's providing instruction. Two, make sure you're a great teammate. So realize that it ain't about you. It's about helping others and pouring into others. Three, make sure you give the best effort that you're capable of. And four, have fun. And uh, I tell them as long as they do those four things, um, their mom and I will continue to pay for their stuff and continue to drive them around and, and, and support them. Uh, as soon as they're not coachable, as soon as they're not good teammates, as soon as they don't give a good effort, and as soon as they're not having fun, uh, that's when they'll no longer do that activity. Mm, yeah, that's, that's so true. And a lot of the people that listen to this podcast as well are moving into that phase in their coaching business where they're becoming a real entrepreneur and they're starting to build teams. Uh, and, and for those who are building teams, how important is them for them to give their team members autonomy, give them responsibility and the freedom to make choices and mistakes and learn from them? It's absolutely vital because we have to realize that when, when you give someone autonomy, uh, which is basically a form of delegation, the unconscious message that you're sending to them is that I, I care and that I trust you and that I believe in you and that I know you can do this and that even if you mess it up, it's okay. It's something that you'll learn from. You know, that's something that really strengthens team cohesion and strengthens the connection between two human beings. Uh, whereas the, the opposite of that, when we micromanage someone, um, you're basically telling them the opposite. You're saying, I don't believe in you. I don't trust you. I don't think you can do this very well. Hence the reason I have to either literally or figuratively stand over your shoulder and make sure you do it right. So, you know, mm -hmm. when, when it comes to bringing on members of your team, uh, I think there's a few things to think about. One, you need to make sure that your criteria for how you're hiring someone is in alignment with what it is that you actually want. And, and I know that may sound obvious, but if you were to, if you were to ask most people, you know, list, list the traits of your ideal employee, list 10 of them or 20 of them, uh, they would start writing this list down. And I'm willing to bet that after they've written 20 of them down, if you said, okay, how many of the things that you just wrote down have to do with IQ and have to do with technical skills? My guess is at most it's two or three, mm. which means... 17 or 18 of the traits have more to do with EQ and emotional fitness and intelligence and, and, and communication and so forth. Hmm. Yet a lot of people, they look at the resume, they look at their technical skills, they look at their years of experience and say, okay, we're going to hire this person because they look good here. And yet that's not even what you're really looking for. That's not even what you want. So it's so hmm. important to and this, again, I cannot stress enough, I'm in no way devaluing technical skills or devaluing uh, intellectual and academic intelligence. Those things are vital, but they're only a small piece of the puzzle. And if it's only going to be a small piece of the puzzle, then it needs to be weighted accordingly. So for me, you know, and I have a small team of people that, that help me, you know, uh, I would rather people... I would rather bring people onto my team that have very high EQ and then learn the technical skills of the job that I need them to do than someone that would be the reverse of that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes total sense. And one of the things Alan, I hear you talk about a lot is to live in excellence 
and to demand that from your people as well and to not let them slide, right? And, and, and why is that so important, Alan? Holding someone accountable is, is something you do for them. It's not something you do to them. And, and a lot of people get that twisted and they think that if someone's holding you accountable that, you know, why are they always on my case? Why are they always busting my chops? You know, mm. and as a parent, I know firsthand, you know, my job is not to be my kid's friend. My job is, is to raise three happy, well-adjusted contributors to society. That's my job as a parent and as a father. And now over time, I absolutely hope that that a loving friendship develops. I mean, nothing would make me happier than, you know, for you and I to reconvene 10 years from today. And I tell you that my three kids are my three best friends in the world. That would be wonderful. But that's not my job. I'm not here to be their pal. So when they do things uh, that are outside of what I believe is necessary to be a, you know, happy, fulfilled, well-adjusted contributor to this world, uh, then I need to hold them accountable for that. And, you know, so if I see them being disrespectful to someone, then that's a time where there will be a consequence for that and, and I will intervene. Uh, hmm. So it's important to know that when you hold someone accountable, even in a work environment, that that's how you show them that you care about them. And that's how you show them that you love them and that you believe that they're capable of more than what they're doing. And it would be such a, a waste to see them just kind of slide by. And you believe in them and care about them so much that you're going to hold them to a higher standard and you're going to care enough to call them out and tell them that. Uh, that to me is, is the ultimate sign. So yeah, I, I believe that accountability and healthy, uh, loving, compassionate confrontation, those are great things. And they're absolutely requirements of high performing and high achieving organizations and teams. Mm, yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's so true. And, and so Alan, you are the author of a book called raise your game. And, and for those who haven't yet, read your book yet what does it mean exactly for someone to raise their game well the subtitle is high performance secrets from the best of the best and uh, my publisher gets a little frustrated when i i kind of take a jab at the uh, at the subtitle but i say it in jest because really there are no secrets uh you know uh, what it takes to perform at a high level is information that has been around long before i have and is readily available to anyone uh, so they're not necessarily secrets, but they're absolutely principles and strategies that will greatly increase the chance that someone will be successful. And, you know, because I came from a sport background, uh, I've always loved the connotation of game. Uh, but raise your game simply means uh, how are you going to improve performance in whatever you're trying to do? I mean, mm. the target audiences for the book are those in sport and those in business and people that want to improve their performance on the field or court and people that mm -hmm. want to improve their performance in the boardroom um, and so forth. Uh, but it absolutely applies uh, to parents. Um, it applies to, to kids and athletes themselves. So uh, performance and, and how we perform in any area of our life uh, directly dictates our confidence and our, our feeling of self-worth. So when mm. your performance goes up, your confidence goes up and your self-worth goes up. And when those things go up, uh, you're more likely to be happy, fulfilled, successful, and significant. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, and so, Alan, if you had a, if I could give you a magic phone and you could talk to your younger self growing up when you were first getting into basketball, having fun, what would you tell yourself if you would tell yourself anything different? 
the funny part is there's lots of things that I would tell myself, but even funnier than that is the younger me would not have listened. You know, one of, hmm. one of the, the parts that, that I can look back now and laugh because I don't believe in living with regret. I mean, every single decision that I've made in my entire life is put me exactly where I am at this present moment. And I'm, I'm very happy and thankful for where I am. So uh, as, as painful uh, as some lessons have been, as boneheaded as some of the mistakes have been, I wouldn't change anything, but you know, uh, that would be one of them. I was incredibly narrow-minded when I was younger, and I always mm -hmm. thought I knew the answer to everything. So I was not near as open to being coached, uh, lacked humility in certain areas because I thought I knew it all. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know that, that part of that just comes with age. I mean, you know, there are certain things right now my kids think they know more than I do on. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm not beating myself up over it, but, but being more open to coaching is absolutely one of them. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the others would just be to, to just realize that, that, like, it's not that big of a deal. I used to put so much pressure on myself to perform or, you know, you lose a game and you think it's the end of the world. And, you know, three decades later, I don't remember any of those games. I, I don't remember what the scores were. I don't remember what our record was, you know. So uh, just to, 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 to put more emphasis on the enjoyment of the process and, and not be so worried about outcomes is probably the number one thing that I would have hoped my younger self would have listened to, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. And so for those listening, Alan, how can, how can people find you? How, what, how can they connect with you or get your book? Well, if they're interested in the book, they can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Um, if anyone's interested in ordering a, a bulk order for their team or for their organization, I can get you a, a really nice discount and I can even pre-sign copies and they can just send me an email at alan at allensteinjr.com. Uh, and that's also my speaking website is allensteinjr.com. Uh, and then I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on Instagram and Twitter and most of the major social handles. Uh, I love engaging with people. So uh, if anyone listening to this, if, if something resonated, um, would love for you to hit me up on social, whatever your preferred platform is, just to say hello. Uh, it'd be great to connect because I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and, and mm -hmm. really, really commend you for being such an outstanding listener and, and letting me talk so much. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. And it was, it, it was great having you on. I also enjoyed this conversation as well. It was amazing to learn about you and your story and also what you have going on for the future. So uh, thank you for being on the show and uh, enjoy for everyone listening. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm.